Hello and welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Renee Mitchell, a former police sergeant with over 22 years in policing. She holds a BS in psychology, an MA in counseling psychology, an MBA, a JD, and a PhD in criminology from the University of Cambridge. She was a 2009-2010 Fulbright Police Research Fellow, where she completed her research in the area of juvenile gang violence at the London Metropolitan Police Service. She is the founder of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, and she currently resides with the RTI International, a nonprofit research institute in North Carolina. Welcome, Dr. Renee Mitchell. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's great. I, I know you're you're in demand these days with people clamoring to hear about uh, where <laughs> research uh, resides in this issue of defunding. Um, it's really important to hear what you have to say about what's going on today and shed some light on maybe the future of policing. And we can start off with your views um, with the trend in calls for defunding in cities across the country. Um and right now we're seeing some real uh, knee-jerk response from elected officials and legislators calling for defunding and actually cutting out whole programs involving school resource officers, um, talking about changing uh, less lethal use of force, um, asking the courts to weigh in on whether or not tear gas can be deployed at riots and things, things of that nature. Um, have you been called upon by legislators to see what should be cut? Um, actually, so only from Nevada. So not like, you know, any kind of uh, federal level legislature, but state legislature. Um, there's actually Tom Roberts. He was the assistant sheriff for Las Vegas Metro. Um, and he, now he is a state legislature uh, legislator. And he has actually, he's always followed the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing and kept up to date on the research. So he's really trying to use the research to bridge that divide between like Democrats and Republicans. Um, because as we all know, there's a, a huge divide between the two sides as far as like what we should and shouldn't be doing. And that's the one thing I've heard people outside of um research and policing, even like some advocacy groups that say the same thing, that we should all be looking to the research to guide our decision-making versus politics or opinions or anecdotal information. Um, and to me, this is also why, if you, if you look at the history of evidence-based medicine um, and where they came from as far as like a profession and how they started changing, they started making the advances they were making is once they started really putting research into practice versus, um, you know, learning from a mentor. They have um, they had the same apprentice model that we do in policing where you learn from an FTO. They had that similar mo uh, model where, you know, they learned from their mentors when they were in residency of how to do things. And they've shown that like when somebody's in medicine for a long period of time, they often don't keep up to date on new methods. And that's now started to change. Um, but looking back historically over evidence, you know, the, the history of evidence-based medicine, the term wasn't even used 
until 1992. Um, and there's articles from, you know, 95, 96, where people are starting to talk about it, but it still hadn't, um, it still hadn't become the norm in medicine. And if you look, you know, now, what, 25 years later, you know, evidence-based medicine, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see a medical doctor practicing something that didn't have its foundation in research um, and academia. And what I find interesting about that is that first article came out in 1992 uh, for evidence-based medicine, you know, and they're much more advanced than policing today. And the first article on evidence-based policing came out in 1998, but we are nowhere near, one, having the funding, you know, from um, the feds to advance the research in, in criminal justice that we should, not compared to other professions and industries, the, the, the research funding they have. Um, and two, we don't have any groups like the American Medical Association. That was the hope for the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing is that we could eventually be the go-to source for where do you get your research from? How does that get translated? The way the American Medical Association. And then also having like the one thing I keep advocating for is we should have something similar to um, the Federal Aviation Administration, you know, that there's a federal group that's actually looking at police practice and policy and determining, like using aggregate data to determine like what works and what doesn't in policing rather than, you know, all of this individuality across city and states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that you you talk about and connect the overlay between the, the medical profession and policing. Um, epidemiology that began with with the medical um, side of the, the house um, traced back um, from injuries and illness and death and decide what, what uh, course of action they should take in, in preventing future cases. And so in policing, we can trace back uh, traffic-related uh, laws, helmet laws, car seats, uh, seat belts, and things like that. Um, through a, a source um, that's evidence-based as, as an epidemiology um, uh, tool. And we're seeing it today with COVID, with the um, contact uh, trace investigators that are trying to go back and find out how people were exposed. So that, that's a really good analogy. But in policing, what about um, IACP that's been doing studies and surveys back since the 80s, um, or the COPS office, don't, don't those those organizations parallel what you're talking about now? Well, the COPS office has always been much more geared towards their grants are to, um, how do I explain this best? Like to support policing. It's not ne- necessarily like research-based. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if everybody says we want community policing, then the COPS office gives the dollars to hire more cops they want to say they want you to show as an organization like how many of your officers are doing community policing there's no real um like outcome research so you know for the lay people if you think about it like a lot of times people will do when they talk about an evaluation it might just be a matter of okay we received this amount of money in grant funding for x project and then they describe the project so if you had a community policing um, grant, it might be that, you know, here's the um, coffee with cops that you did, how many of those you did, how many people attended, 
maybe like, you know, the ethnicities or socioeconomic status of those people, um, how many, you know, Friday night lights or, or whatever the activities are you're engaged in. It's more descriptive statistics of here's how many people showed up. Here's how many people participated. Here's the programs that we created. Here's how many officers we allocated for community policing. And then at the end of your grant, you're just giving a report on all that descriptive information. Okay. And it's, so it's like tracking the busyness okay. of police, right? It's not tracking the, the out, outcomes, right? It's output versus outcomes. It's not tracking like, did you improve community perceptions of the, of the police organization? Mm -hmm. Did, um, you know, did your clearance rates for homicides or other violent events go up because you've improved, you know, your community relations? So to me, when you're looking at like research um, from uh, and funding from a group like the National Institute of Justice, that's what they're looking for is they actually want like empirical outcome investigations where you're also statistically, you're not just doing descriptive statistics, but you are doing inferential statistics. And when I say that, I mean, like to set up a good enough research design where you can link causality. Because I think that's where, even though everybody always repeats correlation is not causation, we still, we still engage in that kind of behavior where we'll say, oh, you know, we had 100 crimes in the past, you know, 90 days, we implemented program X, and now we only have, you know, 85 crimes over uh, the last, the 90 days after the program was, was implemented. Look, we're, you know, we've improved policing, that's showing causality. Mm -hmm. The problem, and not to get too like down into the details, but the problem with that is if you don't have a comparison group to just look at if that was the normal trend, whether you did an intervention or not, then you don't know that crime was just coming back down, you know, that it didn't have anything to do with your intervention. You have to have a comparison group, um, whether that be a control group that gets no intervention or um, a comparison group that gets your standard police patrol or whatever your standard um, engagement is versus your new thing. And this is where in medicine they do it all the time. But that's how you figure out causality. And there's little, very little research dollars that get put towards that. And very few like groups as far as like IACP, PERF has a couple grants that I think they received. But that's the hard part too is your expectation of these groups, like, so if you include ASCBP in there, you know, we just got our first NIJ grant funding to put on an applied criminology and data management course that I'm for fun calling ACDC. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for our course, like, we don't even have the research design set up for causality. It's in the beginning, it's just a process evaluation. But when you have so little funding, like, IACP probably would do more research if they had access to funding to do the research. Same with PERF, same with us, same with, you know, the universities that are trying to get this funding. Like we're all vying for a very small, you know, pot of funding in RTI International. So you still, you also have, you know, RAND and RTI International that has, we both have big policing research groups um, that are vying for those small pots of money. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that that all makes sense because we know in policing that it's really hard to prove uh, the negative of, you know, what did you prevent, right? So we can always quantify the number of arrests and and whether the number of arrests have gone up or down. And police has been asked to be swift and efficient in responding to calls for service. Um, We're looking at AI and intelligence-based measures like crime mapping and predictive policing models based on statistics. Um, We look at gang databases and predictive hotspots. And now we have places like uh, Los Angeles where um, we have legislators calling for an end to predictive policing, like do not use these databases. Uh, Can an argument be made to keep these statistics um, based and not biased? I mean, what do we have to do to convince people that we really do need to look at the data, but how do we how do we tell them that it's not biased? Well, and that's so that's part of the reason one that ASCBP actually created this course because I think some of the flaws in our system start out with the fact that when your command staff, as you promote through the ranks, nowhere are you trained to be able to understand and interpret data in a way that is meaningful, right? Most most command staff are just tossed into their first command staff meeting or their management meeting. The way those uh, their data analytics are set up are set up previous to them stepping into that chair as a lieutenant mm-hmm. or a captain, you know, and their data is laid out to them, you know, with um, here's your crime the week before, here's your crime this week or the month before, or the same period in the year before. That's the way, it's a binary comparisons every time. So things are already set up. And and to me, I think where we've, where we have headed when it comes to policing since the early 2000s, as far as using predictive analytics, as far as being data-driven, like this is all advanced way faster than our profession's been able to keep up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think some of it is you have to get somewhere in the training, like training around data and analytics. So first of all, that your command staff, your chiefs understand when they're talking to a community, like how to communicate about their data very well, because I think one of the misperceptions, and this is a very long winded way to answer your question, Jim, <laughs> but one of the ways I think that, that the citizens misperceive like the bias in the data is that they assume that that comes out of proactivity of the cops, right? So if you look at, depending on how you're doing analytics, PredPol is not transparent about um, the data that's going in, but something like your risk terrain modeling um, that's uh, online for free out of Rutgers, um, university, they are their their risk terrain modeling program is based on research. So they are looking at those underlying factors that contribute to crime. So, and we know through routine activities theory that when you know you bring a victim and a an offender together without a capable guardian, you have the potential for crime. So mm-hmm. if you look at everything we know um, based on the research is when you bring people together in a location that there is like high traffic, low visit, low guardianship, you're going to have crime occurring. And 
a lot of the models are based on the citizens' calls for service. So most of your hotspot policing studies that have been done, they're not looking at um, hotspots based on officer proactivity. They're looking at your hotspots based on what your citizens are calling in. Now, I know, and, and like to me, these are all things that need to be examined empirically because I know the argument would be there. Well, those calls for service, because you know America has bias, those calls for service, even from the citizens, will be biased. Right. And that that may or may not be true. Like we we have some maybe evidence where people don't call in, but they're on the national victim survey, so you could show not every single victim of every single crime calls in to the cops to get um, help, right? Right. But at the same point in time, like whatever calls are coming in from your community, they're at a level where they feel like they need some type of police intervention. Mm-hmm. And I don't think from, and it, like I said, to me, it needs empirical research, but just based on like my career for, for what I've seen in my organization is it's not a, it's, it's not what I think the citizen perceives as a white person sitting in their living room saying, Oh my gosh, there's a black person walking by and I think they're casing, you know, houses for the most part, like you get legitimate calls from the community. Like there is a fight going on. They are having an argument with their neighbor. There is a homeless person, no matter the race sleeping on their doorstep, you know, that they don't feel comfortable going out and saying, excuse me, sir, can you please move? Because, you know, whatever reason they might be a female, they might be elderly. They might just not want to have to deal with this issue themselves, so they call the police. But I think I think the, the problem lies in some of what I reviewed with like LAPD, because um, I went and re-examined our Sacramento hotspot study when I saw LAPD's review came, come out, is I do think you need to have, one, you have to have a feedback loop. They've shown it through research, like the only way you actually truly become an expert in your field is having feedback to understand whether your actions are getting the outcomes that you're seeking. And a lot of times in policing, as you know, you know, we go to a call, we have no idea like the outcome, right? We may have taken somebody to jail, maybe we, you know, mediated a dispute, but if it could if there's a call back a couple of days later or on a different different shift, we might never know like that that happened unless you have, you know, an angry beat mate. That's like, hey, I had to go out and handle your problem because you didn't handle it the first time. But what I'm saying is, like, to me, I think the oversight should be at the command staff level. And I don't mean this as like an accountability, like trying to um, uh, punish the officers if they do something wrong. What I mean is, and I said this, you know, in an interview last week, week about aggregate data. Like the bias doesn't come out in individual data. It comes out in the aggregate. So to me, it's the responsibility of command staff to look at their aggregate data to, to determine, hey, is there disparate context, you know, uh, racially disparate, economically, like are there socioeconomic um, disparities between groups that we are over here more than, you know, in a different area of the city? But that can only be done by looking at your policing activity. And even before George Floyd and any of this stuff happened, every time I taught about evidence-based policing, one of my, you know, I would beat on this drum is 
to me, we look at crime data all the time. We never look at policing data. And if you want to look at crime in totality, you have to have both the, you know, the, the numerator and the denominator. And to me, crime is the numerator, but police activity is the denominator because research does show that police activity reduces crime. When police de-police, crime goes up. We also know from natural events, um, when, when policing has been taken away completely, that there is disorder that occurs, like we're robbery. Seeing it today. We're seeing it yes, today. We're seeing it today, right. So we, we have evidence that shows like that you have to have police. I even think CHOP up in Seattle is a perfect example of humanity. No matter what happens, whether it's state sanction or it just evolves, somebody is going to police a group because of group dynamics and just being human. We all don't agree. We all don't perceive things the same way. And at some point in time, there's going to be disagreements. And what is going to evolve out of a community is the person or people or groups of persons that you go to to seek out like somebody to solve the problem. And we've been doing this since we became tribes back in the day. Uh, and it'll so, always go back to that. And and I will. think any cop could, could have predicted the Chaz or Chop uh, end result as it as it happened. And and right. you know students keep talking to me about uh, communities policing themselves, and I try to help them understand that there will be this dynamic where uh, not everyone will agree with how that's done. Right. And to me, I know people, and, and I, I do agree, I think policing should continue evolving and changing as we have done for decades, because every time a presidential commission comes along, we do evolve as a profession. And we do get better and we do try to reflect the community's values. But if you want the community to police themselves, what is going to happen is the strongest and the most heavily armed, as you saw in CHOP, will be the people to take over. And right. it will be their way and, you know, the highway. Because, right. you know, they talk about policing search and seizure. You know, they were searching every single person that came into CHOP. So your community members are just going to turn into unsanctioned state, you know, like state unsanctioned police officers. And then what? Who are you going? What internal affairs group is overseeing your community police officer? None. None. Right. And there are no constitutional protections like the Fourth Amendment. Right. You, your community will decide like what happens to you. And to me, what happens is like what you see now, like with the Twitter mafia, is when the community decides like somebody should be shunned, somebody should be ostracized, somebody should lose their job because they said something that a portion of the community didn't care for. Well, then guess what? You have no protections because the you know like the salem witch trials you'll just be told hey i think you're a witch and here's all the reasons why i think you're a witch and there'll be no justice and right. don't get me don't get me wrong i think once again we can improve but so and and here's another thing because you asked about like the lapd and the and the bias in data so and this is why i think that oversight at a command staff level of policing activity is so important. And like I said, I don't mean it for accountability measures, that too, which will be good, but I mean it for like just as a business proposition, right? Because yeah. I've always, it's always confused me as to why police officers 
are like independent contractors. I'm like, what job do you get to show up at IBM and be like, yeah, I don't want to work on that software today or that system. I'm going to do this over here. And if you watch police patrol, like the culture of police patrol, they are obligated to answer calls for service in their beats. And then between those calls for service, they are free to roam, right? So they get to police who they want to police, where they want to police, and enforce the activities that they enjoy enforcing. And that is the one thing that I don't think the American public realizes is that as a business model, they are really independent contractors. So to me, what needs to shift as a business model is for command staff to say, no, here's where I want you to police, and this is what I want you to do. Cops mm -hmm. are going to hate it. I'm probably going to get hate mail for saying this. <laughs> But I also think it drives down your crime and improves like your community outlook. So when LAPD had all that pushback about their predictive policing, I went back into our hotspots data. I'll tell you right now, the officers did not like being told what to do. Um, and all we were asking is that between their calls for service, that they go to their um, the hotspots in their beats, um, every couple of hours for 15 minutes, high mm -hmm. visibility, because it was a baby step. We knew by telling our, uh, the officers what to do that they wouldn't care for it and there, and there would be a lot of pushback, which there was. But high visibility, 15 minutes. So we weren't even saying, like, go to this hotspot and hammer the area, which I think is also a misperception of what, what occurs. Right. So I went back to look at, okay, I knew that we had 21 hotspots in two districts. We use them as the treatment area. And then we had 21 hotspots um, in the same districts that were our control areas. So comparing the treatment to control, we ended up dropping part one crime by 25% and calls for service by 7.7%. So you have some, some crime gains, right? You have the reduction in crime. You have some reduction in, in social disorder because to me, calls for service is a little reflective of like your social disorder. Because mm -hmm. they often they don't get to the level of crime. But here's the thing. So I wanted, I was curious about this argument that like doing that kind of laser focused policing was a, was detrimental to the community, right? That it's uh, focusing on your people of color. Mm -hmm. So I pulled all the data and I compared our arrests out of the two groups. And what I found interesting is the racial breakup of those arrests still remained similar, right? So I think for African-American, it was still um, slightly higher than whites. But what I found more interesting is the fact that in the treatment groups, we had 100 less arrests than in the control hotspots over 90 days. So you have 100 less people being arrested in your city, in these areas, while you're dropping crime and calls for service. So to me, by letting your officers roam free and just use their bias, like if we want to, if we want to go with the assumption that every police officer has bias, right? You're just letting them be free to roam and stop and contact whoever they want versus saying, I would like you here in these areas at these times being highly visible. And if, you know, you could, you see something, you know, then you're obviously going to engage the public. But the idea between, behind hotspots is that you're deterring crime from, you know, in, before it happens. So you're, you're reducing those numbers. 
Right, but doesn't that play into the argument of the critics that say, when you put police there, of course, they're going to see something and then they're going to take action and it's going to be disparate. And so I think the move, the the move for, you know, the opportunists who've seized on the moment is that they want police to be more like firefighters, like to stay in in a police headquarters and then respond only after a crime has occurred or violence has occurred. Well, and I was going to me, my answer to that would be, okay, run that experiment and see what happens. Because the the issue you have is a lot of your proactive, like highly visible um, policing, there is evidence that shows, you know, it reduces your drug activity, which reduces Mm -hmm. your robberies, which reduces, you know, your DUIs. So if you're okay with the American public seeing increases across all of those um, crime types, then go ahead and run that experiment. But I think, you, we're, I think we're seeing that experiment right. in several cities right now. Right. But I think they're like, to me, it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's a balance between the two. Um, and, and you have to go into when they talk about these, um, you know, the disparate contacts. Nobody's got, like delved down into, I shouldn't say nobody. Sometimes I speak in generalities and like, yes, I have not read every single piece of criminal justice research. I try to keep myself well-educated and up to date, but I could, somebody probably could come back and say, you know, Renee, there's this one piece that was written, you know, in 2019 that I, you know, missed. But I don't think people dig down into the data to determine like, who is being contacted and why? And yes, like you can probably reduce those contacts that are maybe for like the cracked windshield, mm-hmm. you know, the bald tires, those types of things, you know, but when you have your calls and they're saying like, Hey, I was robbed. Here's the description. And we go arrest that person that looks like that description. That's to me, that's not disparate contact. So you have to, Somehow you have to weed out those different kind of contacts because you can't say like, oh, my gosh, the police are targeting this one race. If that crime associated with that arrest or that contact is a crime that the American public does not want occurring. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also where society is really getting involved into, oh, my gosh, you know, the police are doing this, this and this Well, then take away those take away those crimes, then make jaywalking an an okay crime, make selling food on a corner with no um, health permit, um, not a crime, make all of those things not a crime. Um, Because I think I heard it best. And I want to say it was a professor who's like out of Yale that would start one of his crim classes with, are you okay for somebody with somebody dying for that law? Like, because you have to understand, like, if you even this like small little law, if a police ha- a police officer has contact with that person, and then that person doesn't want to get a citation, be arrested, be warned, or whatever it is, and a fight starts, and that person pulls out a weapon or what have you, and that ends up in the death of an officer or a citizen, are you okay with that being the ultimate like potential outcome for this? crime. And I always thought that was an interesting way to think about, you know, when we're making laws in America. Yeah, that's that's true to to an extent, but law enforcement's under tremendous pressure 
to enforce those laws from people like Mothers Against Drunk Drivers and um, yes. Vision Zero and and people like that who say, you know, we shouldn't have these pedestrian fatalities. We shouldn't have drunk drivers out on the street. We know there are chronic drunk drivers with three, four, five multiple arrests, and yet they're still out there. So I hear what you're saying, but uh, you you mentioned social disorder that you know they the, that falls in the lap of law enforcement every day. Um, we keep hearing uh, that they're going to bring in others to address those social ills, like mental health and social service, homeless issues, um, traffic and noise complaints. Is that, are we going there? Is that the future of policing? Well, and I, I think every cop I ever talked to, they're just like, yeah, sure. Like, have take it. Else. Yeah, take it. We don't want it. Like never have wanted it. We'd rather not have it. We just also understand, you know, what we've seen in the field and we're not sure that it'll work. Um, and just for those those that are listening, I do revert between like researcher Renee and like cop Renee. I think there's two two sides of me, you know, that looks at the empirical data, but also looks at, you know, realistically like how things. And um, human nature. Human, yeah, exactly. But what I've always, what, what I've argued for when it comes to defund the policing and, and, and reallocating um, our budget somewhere else is once again, you got to start with the research and evidence. So you have to go through, if you want to have new mental health services for your community, great. Then start going through your calls for service and determine how many mental health calls are you having a day? And of those mental health calls, like how many of them had weapons? And then of those um, mental health calls, how many of them needed to be 5150? So to me, then you could actually make a determination of, okay, if we have X amount of calls, this is how many mental health workers will actually need. And then from there, look at the research. Like what is the best program to have for these kind of calls? Mm -hmm. And do we have, my hunch would be, we don't even have enough research because do you want mental health workers you know, going out by themselves? Do you want mental health workers going out with cops? Do you want that it's you know, both that depending on the type of call, you know, that you're basically making that um, decision in the moment. So a dispatcher would, you know, evaluate the call and say, okay, mental health worker, you're taking this one. Okay, police officer with mental health worker, you're taking this one. Or, you know, the person is basically having, you know, a mental health crisis and they have a knife, just like with firefighters that we do, like the officers have to go and like, calm the scene down before a mental health worker goes in because the American public probably doesn't realize like firefighters just don't go rushing into gun calls. We have to make sure that the scene is safe before they enter. So I can't imagine we would do anything less for mental health workers. If there was some type of call where you have, you know, somebody walking around like with a knife and, and to me, those are the type of things that, people don't, you know, realize, I don't know who posted it. And I wanted to say, I think it was actually in the UK, it wasn't here, but, you know, anecdotally, they gave the story of some 22 year old mental health worker who, you know, called her boyfriend, left a message saying she wanted to check on this one, you know, kid that was having issues before she went home. Well, she went and checked on him in his house. He ended up like imprisoning her in a back bedroom, had her back there with a knife, Um, his mom comes home and mom's pleading with him to release the girl and he starts stabbing her. The mom blocks between 
you know, her son and this young woman and mom gets stabbed in the back, you know, and runs to the neighbors to call the police. Mom ended up surviving this, the mental health worker did not, you know, and he was a juvenile. He wasn't an adult. People are, you know, oh my gosh, they're a kid. How could you possibly do this to kids? But kids, as we, as we've seen, kids do kill, um, you know, and he was on a psychotic break, you know, I, but to me, it's like, you don't, and you don't know when that's going to be, happen, right? Like how many right. times have we checked on somebody and they're pretty much fine. Like they might be going like through a hard time or not on their meds, but they're not a danger to somebody, you know, <laughs> they, and you never know. Like, so. No, you bring up, you bring up excellent points, but I think the, the most vocal critics and, you know, they have that dichotomy that the police respond to no calls from here on out, that it's all mental health, that, if we're going to cut, you know, millions of dollars from your budget, get used to it because we're sending someone else. But right. I, I've always said, you know, how many, you know, social workers or mental health workers need to be injured before, you know, people who who really end up uh, deciding these things realize it's a bad idea. Right. Or you just end up arming them. Like, are you going to arm them with tasers and pepper spray the same way? You know, you arm like an animal control person with pepper spray or, you know, I just. Yeah, me, we've had that. We've had that discussion after school shootings. Do we give guns to teachers? Teachers. Yeah. Right. So I think like to me, like I said, I just really think that the research and the data should be driving these decisions and mm -hmm. they should not be knee jerk. And whatever you do, like you have to make sure that you're going to test like how this all works. Cause even, you know, I was talking about it the other day when it, when they talked about, okay, if you look at these contexts, I think there's a protest starting in one city over the traffic stop being over, um, you know, those minor violations that we get the, I don't know if it was a taillight or something was broken. Right. Mm -hmm. And we, and we have those laws to protect other people. So you're not driving around with no headlights and somebody crashes into into you and harm you. But I said, well, okay, if they don't want police to monitor that, to me, then what that looks like in a city is like your parking enforcement is now your like vehicle check person. And so when your car is parked on a city street, you might come back to a ticket that says you have a cracked windshield, um, you have bald tires, your registration's expired, um, here's your ticket to the owner of the car. And there's no discretion. Like that person just walks around. So every time you park your car, like the next time that enforcement person walks around, you could get a ticket the next day and the next day and the next day and just keep getting tickets. And there's going to be no discretion. And then you can't argue that it's a race issue because it'll just be parked vehicles that nobody has an idea of like who owns it getting tickets for their vehicle code violations right and you you could you could make something like that and just leave the traffic enforcement and policing to you know speeding uh duis and you know any other reckless behavior in a vehicle but leave all the minor stuff to you know administrative type um people working sure. in the field because you know the other thing people talk about is cities losing their fundings well <laughs> think about how much uh, cheaper a traffic like administrative person would be in the city of San Francisco. San Francisco right. could make money hand over fist, just ticketing cars that have 
you know, things wrong with it every day, all day. Sure. So I guess like my point to all of this is, is that you, once again, you have to go back to your data and see like what your data really says. And then you have to, and not superficial data, you have to dig down in there and see what the reason is why people are stopping somebody. And then, you know, if we have this level of accountability, like you could map out where your officers are and like what they're doing during the day. You know, for example, RTI International has this calls for service analytic software and you could map like where the officers are and you could show over a month, like what they're doing. And if they're over policing a certain area, then you could start looking at, well, why are they policing in that area? Are we having an, an uptick in robberies? Is it that we have a ton of DV calls coming out of that area? Like, why are we there? Right. And then if you're there a lot, like, is it uh, your own officer's proactivity or is it citizens calling them into the area? Mm. So you could show your community, here's why we were there and this is what we were doing instead of the way we do it now, which is, we don't know what our cops are doing or why they are there in an aggregate form and start right. chipping away at the racial disparity stuff. Like I just, mm-hmm. I think there's a way to monitor it, monitor it. And I think you could also incorporate like a social harm index into a system like that, that overlies like your, your socioeconomic um, census data on top of your um, crime calls for service and officer proactivity data and start really getting an understanding of like, what are we doing in our city and why are we doing it? Yeah, so I'm. you just answered my last question and that's, you know, what's the foreseeable future in policing look like? And I think you just mapped it out. Yeah, any other ideas? No, I just, I mean, to me, I think when they talk about um, like police training, I think they, I think it's got to get away from like this, individual idea of like I could train an officer in procedural justice or I could train an officer in implicit bias and that's going to change the whole culture of the organization right like we were having a discussion on the general listserv with ASEBP and we were talking about policies and practice where you have a change in policies the officers adjust behavior you get behavioral change whereas we don't really know and there's a lack of evidence to see any behavioral change from implicit bias training or procedural justice training but if you have oversight at the command level and command understands how to look at their data interpret their data and then how to create policy and practice around that data i think you could get huge changes immediately within an organization instead of waiting for decades of individual officer training to take hold in a culture. So like, to me, I think it's a a matter of also, like you have to change the culture of policing when it comes to like command staff and their training Um, because we love leadership training, right? Um, every, Every command staff will go to some type of leadership training and the department will pay big money. And it's usually a check the box for somebody to become a police chief, but no, nowhere in there does anybody ever ask that police chief, like what is their understanding of like their data and how it should be used and their understanding of like the empirical research uh, that we know about what works and what doesn't in policing and how they apply that in the field. Because, if they did have those interview questions for police chiefs, I, I feel bad because they'd say, well, I've never, never had training for that. So right. we don't have 
training at the executive level that teaches executives how to manage a business. We basically promote people that we think are good cops, and we somehow think that that's going to translate into being a good manager or leader, and it doesn't. That's exactly right. No, it's been my experience that once you make lieutenant, you do have the mandatory post requirements for for the next level in training, but you don't get the technical operator level uh, training that we require of officers and sergeants um, in the field. And I think you're you're dead on and and those should be requirements, um, not just attending conferences where they can you know, choose to breeze right. in and out of, um, you know, breakout sessions or listen to speakers. I, I think that's that's a great, um, it's a great um, mark to make. Um, so I've got to wrap up here. Thank you so much time for your contributions today, Dr. Renee Mitchell. Um, we, we know you were on CNN um, this month in July. And you can be found, uh, the website for the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing is www.americansebp.org. American spelled out, sebp.org. Um, what, what else? What, what are you working on? Where, where can we see some of your studies? Um, well, I was going to say, like, my, most of my studies right now are in progress. I actually haven't published anything um, other than we just myself with Laura Huey um, and a couple other authors, actually Ro- Roger Pegram from the UK, who's a um, I think he's an inspector level out there, and uh, one of Laura's grad students just will have a book coming out on implementing evidence-based policing in organizations next March. And then my biggest like piece of work that I'm trying to finish right now is. Um, I'm actually solo authoring a book called 21 Mental Models um, That Can Change Policing. And it's more about this idea of understanding data and interpretation. And really, I'm hoping that I could help um, command staff like critically think about policing in a in a much more like 30,000 foot level um, to apply data and to apply research and to really examine their outcomes to get the crime reductions, the calls for service reductions while reducing harm to the community. So that's the biggest piece, but I don't, that one also will probably be out next, um, anywhere from March to June, but I don't have any current like research articles coming out. They're all like in process. But there are a lot of great studies on uh, the AS uh, EBP. So I encourage our listeners to check in uh, and to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, What do you think? Uh, What's going on near you? What are the battles to defund the police and how are you fighting back? What are you using um, to fight for essential services? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Comment under the podcast or write us at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policingmatters at policeone.com. I'm Jim Dudley. Thanks so much for listening in. Thanks, Dr. Mitchell.